Cryptography refers to the securing of communications across various mediums. That might mean transmitting messages via public channels, like radio signals that will be meaningful to the intended recipient, but to no one else. And it might mean figuring out how to send emails that can't be intercepted, or telegraph missives that are less likely to be read by someone who has managed to tap the cable across which that missive was sent. Modern cryptography often involves the securing of digital messages transmitted via internet-based channels, including things like emails and e-commerce transaction information, and more fundamentally, handshake-style information that helps manage connections between devices, protocols that allow you to connect to websites from your smartphone, for instance. In earlier, pre-digital computer times, Cryptography almost always meant encryption, the scrambling of characters in a handwritten letter, for instance, which would allow the recipient, who would have some kind of unscrambling knowledge or access to the proper code, that would allow them to make sense of seemingly nonsensical words or letters or numbers, or through the use of what's called a one-time pad, which is essentially a use-once-then-discard formula that allows the possessor of this pad of de-encryption information the ability to unscramble a code that has been encrypted by someone with the same pad, and thus the same set of one-use codes arranged in the same order, a method of encryption that would be all but impossible to decrypt, lacking the exact pad possessed by the encryptor. Today, cryptography also refers to non-encryption-related methods of securing these communication channels. Algorithms can be used to lock down information in such a way that only folks with the right algorithms and the proper processing power can see what's being said, a method somewhat similar to those one-use pads that spies from the Middle Ages to the Cold War used whenever possible. But there are other schemes, heavily reliant on advanced mathematical theory and sophisticated computer science knowledge, that likewise are not technically encryption-based, but serve the same ultimate purpose of obscuring information to everyone except those the senders intend to receive and understand it. Even with the advent of these new methods, though, encryption remains fundamental to information security in the digital age. And that's fairly remarkable, as this is a concept and technique that's been used as far back as 1900 BC. Perhaps even further than that, too, but we have evidence of what's called symbol replacement encryption in the tomb of Khnumhotep II, who was a governor of the 12th dynasty of ancient Egypt, and who is best known today for his elaborately decorated tomb that, among other interesting architectural and decorative attributes, also features a message that would require a key, something like a one-use pad, to understand. In other words, there is a message in this tomb that was meant to only be intelligible to someone or a group of someones entrusted with this key that would allow them to swap in the right symbols for other symbols, which are visible by anyone who visits. Again, this is similar to the sorts of codes that have been used throughout history, including, much more recently, during the Cold War, 
in written messages, but also via transmitted mediums like number stations, which typically have recorded voices listing numbers over and over again, the message encoded by those numbers only accessible to someone with the right key that allows them to unscramble what is being communicated. One of the simpler and also older encryption techniques is often called the Caesar or shift cipher. To encrypt a message using this approach, you choose a number, let's say three, and then shift all of the letters in your message by that number according to alphabetical order. So if you're using the English language and alphabet and you want to encrypt the word hello, you would shift H by three, which gives you K, H-I-J-K, is three letters from H in the alphabet, Then you do the same for the other letters, so E becomes H, the L's become O's, and the O becomes R. Using a shift of three to encrypt hello, then, would give you core, K-H-O-O-R, a message that, as long as the recipient knows by how much you are shifting, the message is easy to unscramble, but which might be unintelligible to anyone else in between who sees this word that, for all they know, is the name of a location, or the name of a person, or just a random jumble of letters. The Caesar cipher, being so simple, turns out to also be simple to decode, though, even by people who don't know what shift value is being used. There is a finite number of values by which you could shift these letters. Modern software makes looking for shift value options a simple process, then. And even a complex message takes only a few seconds to unscramble, even by someone without any sense of what shift might have been used. So this method is primarily used for entertainment purposes in modern times, used in codes between friends or in escape rooms and that sort of thing. That said, understanding how Caesar ciphers work provides a fundamental understanding of how encryption in general works. Because even though modern encryption methods have incredibly sophisticated keys that would require, theoretically at least, hundreds or thousands of years on a supercomputer, if you tried to do so without the proper key, or any understanding of what kind of symbol shifting or other replacement method is taking place, it's still fundamentally the same general concept. And powerful encryption of this kind has become so easy to implement, so commonplace, that it's even possible to use it for other purposes, for deleting information from computers and similar devices, for instance, by overwriting data with zeros and ones or other sorts of unintelligible patterns that don't technically delete the data they contain, but instead encrypts it to such a degree that gleaning information from it becomes all but impossible. So that device, if it's reused in the future, can simply overwrite with time all of the encrypted data that it contains. So the information that it contains is practically deleted, even if not literally so, at least not immediately. What I'd like to talk about today, though, is another use for encryption that's becoming increasingly popular and increasingly expensive for the people, businesses, organizations, and governments that find themselves targeted by it. You are listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. 
The article I'd like to start with today comes from Bloomberg, and it's entitled Dark Side Hackers Mint Money with Ransomware Franchise. Back in June of 2019, so almost exactly two years ago from when this episode goes live, I produced an episode about ransomware, a not new thing, but something that was rapidly entering the mainstream at the time because of a group called the Shadow Brokers, a piece of software stolen from a U.S. agency and repurposed to inject a piece of software called WannaCry into unpatched computers beginning in 2017, and the necessarily evolving terms of engagement honored by various U.S. agencies, including those from which this software and a large number of other cyber weapons were stolen and made public for anyone who wanted them and could figure out how to use them. Ransomware is becoming mainstream because it often uses now fairly common illicit software tools and operates on the principle that if you can get access to someone's data and encrypt it, there's a decent chance that your victim will pay you for the key that will allow them to unencrypt it, to unscramble that data. And encrypt in this context typically means of the very sophisticated, would take a supercomputer thousands of years to crack the code sort of encryption. This is not a Caesar cipher. It is high-end stuff that on a practical level means that if you do not have a recent backup of your data, and if you are not willing to pay the demanded ransom, you are out of luck because you are unlikely to ever see that data again. For all intents and purposes, it has been deleted. That is why this gamble, not always, but often, pays off for those who use this type of attack. Data is important, and losing it could mean the loss of tens of millions of dollars, could cause untold reputational harm, and could even collapse a business from the inside out. As you might imagine, though, some data is more valuable to its owners than others. You or I might be really irritated and inconvenienced and perhaps even harmed on a personal or emotional level if our data were to be encrypted and we couldn't get it back. We might lose personal photos, old letters with sentimental value, tons of tax information or business documents or applications with the settings set up just right. Not an ideal situation, but not necessarily one that we would be willing or able to pay tons of money to remedy. No matter how inconvenienced I might be by such an attack, I wouldn't be able to afford a million-dollar ransom, and the same is true of countless other people and businesses and institutions. Thus, just as the software involved for getting into the data and encrypting it has evolved over time, so has the range of targets that make sense for those doing the attacking, so that the risk-reward ratio stays favorable. These days, most ransomware attacks target not individuals or random companies, but entities that cannot really afford to lose their data or have their digital infrastructure shut down. Government entities, hospitals, schools, insurance companies, basically any entity that is both likely to have data that they cannot afford to lose, and those who have the monetary resources to pay a ransom of this kind. And part of the math here is that these are also institutions that are more likely to view paying this kind of ransom as just one of the costs of doing business. 
Yes, it might cost them a million dollars to have their customer or patient files decrypted, but it would cost them 10 million to rebuild that data, and perhaps a lot more than that, in damage to their customer base or reputation, if it got out that they lost their data as a result of such an attack. And that is a pretty good lead-in to the main topic of that Bloomberg piece. Darkside is a ransomware hacker group that first emerged as an entity in Russian-language hacking forums in August of 2020. They posted in these forums and later on other forums for different geographic regions in order to attract what are called affiliate hackers. Basically, other people or groups who would hack into the appropriate institutions on their own independently and then inject DarkSide's ransomware software into those accessed entities' digital infrastructure. DarkSide would then handle the more hands-on component of getting the ransom, sending emails to, and in some cases calling, the victims to make very clear how payment would need to work and what they could expect once a ransom payment was made. And then DarkSide, after handling that side of this attack, would split the ransom payment with the affiliate. This affiliate model was not novel to DarkSide, but they did seem to be particularly good at attracting other hackers to work with them and getting them to use their software instead of other available affiliate ransomware options. Part of that success seems to be tied to their relative professionalism. Darkside had a very clear process for both the affiliate hackers and the hacked victims, which added some clarity and certainty to what might otherwise be a relatively opaque process for everyone involved. Darkside also outlined in their informational Why Work With Us explanation document a set of principles that would seem to set them apart from other hacking groups. They basically say that, yeah, they want to make money, and they're doing this illegal thing to get that money, but they will not hack any medical institution that is involved with the distribution of COVID-19 vaccines. They won't attack entities providing funeral services. They won't attack schools or universities, nonprofit organizations, or anything in the government sector. These policies, according to that same document, were meant to ensure that their victims were of a certain class and scale that they could afford to pay a ransom, but not entities within certain groups and categories and sectors, so that if they decided not to pay, it would not create any kind of international incident or harm to individuals or the death of businesses or organizations or people who haven't done anything wrong. It's all about the money, in other words, not politics or ideology or as a means of just sowing destruction because they can. Alongside this code of ethical conduct, though, were additional threats that not all ransomware attacks have utilized or focused on previously. If they are not paid, DarkSide threatens to publish all of their target's data for at least six months on the dark web, to send notifications about that data dump and the fact that the target was successfully hacked to the press and to the target's customers and partners. And of course, they will also never provide the necessary decryption key, even if the target changes their mind in the future. 
if they don't pay up immediately when that payment is demanded. It's all about reputation management, in other words, on both ends of this criminal relationship. They promise to behave in a relatively businesslike manner if you pay them, if you play ball, and they promise to provide the proper encryption key immediately if you do pay. But if you do not pay, they will ruin your reputation to the best of their ability, including going out of their way to ensure that no one does business with you in the future, and if they can, collapsing your stock price as well. And that last threat is further upheld by an ongoing list of victims who refused to pay on their website, a list that in some cases has been used by short sellers to tank the stocks of businesses that have been victimized by Darkseid, but which haven't yet made announcements about the damage done. So their stock price can then be manipulated and shorted if they fail to pay this ransom. All of which is a pretty compelling argument for just going along with the ransom process that this group suggests. Yeah, it'll cost you, but the idea is that if you've been targeted, you can probably afford it, and it'll generally be cheaper in many ways to just pay them than to not pay them. And this approach seems to work out for hackers a lot of the time. At the beginning of 2021 alone, hackers have taken more than $81 million using this and similar methods, and more than $400 million were paid out from 2019 to 2020, a period during which payouts resulting from such attacks increased in scale by 337%. That's the overall concept of their business model. In the real world, rather than in a criminally idealized theoretical one, though, things are often more complicated than what they have outlined in these and similar documents. For instance, an attack on Colonial Pipeline, a system of gasoline and jet fuel pipelines that starts in Texas and extends all the way up to New Jersey, accounting for about 5,000 miles of pipeline and providing the majority of these energy resources to about a dozen U.S. states along its length. The hack of this pipeline resulted in, first, a shortage stemming from the shutdown of the pipeline backend, all of the digital techno-wizardry that makes it work and that allows for payments to be accepted and processed, and then, second, a wave of panic buying that resulted from this pipeline network being shut down for the better part of a week, for about six days in total. This was obviously not ideal for Colonial, or for all of the businesses and people who rely on their fuel products in order to stay in business and to get to work, to heat their homes, and so on. But it also wasn't great for Darkseid, because of that aforementioned code of ethics that they say they adhere to, and which is likely, as much as anything else, meant to help set them apart from other franchising hacker groups. But it also wasn't great for them because Colonial actually paid their ransom demand of 75 bitcoins, which were worth not quite $5 million at the time they were paid. But the decryption software that Colonial was given post-payment was very, very slow, and that extended the shutdown, which in turn extended the shortage 
which in turn raised panic levels, and that led to a run on the gas pumps in some of these regions, creating an extended shortage similar to what was experienced in the U.S. and many other countries in the early days of the COVID-19 pandemic shutdown, where minor shortages of things like toilet paper became these dramatic extended shortages because of people rushing out to stores all at once and buying more of these now slightly less available things than they needed just in case. A sense of self-preservation then leading to hoarding, which then would lead to artificial shortages that needn't have happened, at least not at that scale. Interestingly, Darkseid even kind of sort of apologized for this outcome, for all of those shortages of their hack, which seems to have been unintentional. As fuel shortages spread across the U.S. Southeast, gas stations emptying out and staying empty for days, and prices jumping at those that did have gas available. And as the governor of Georgia and then-President Biden declared states of emergency related to this shortage, Darkseid released a statement that said, quote, We are apolitical. We do not participate in geopolitics, do not need to tie us with a defined government, and look for other motives. Our goal is to make money and not creating problems for society, end quote. They also vowed to be more careful in who they target and who they allow their affiliates to target. Less than a week after that, Darkseid posted an announcement that said because they were now being targeted by the U.S. government and because they had themselves recently been hacked and had their payment server and blog and cryptocurrency accounts taken with all of the funds in their accounts drained into some other accounts that they don't control, they would be, as a group, shutting down. So basically, good luck everyone and goodbye. They also said that they would auto-send decryption tools to their victims that haven't yet paid, which seems like a nice move, in the same sense as someone threatening to burn down your house, but who then doesn't go through with that threat, is being nice. This could be exactly what it seems to be. This group, which caused a lot of damage to a lot of entities, especially those in the U.S., were hit with some kind of cyber attack from the U.S. government or some other entity associated with the U.S. government. And that entity took them out and took their money. And that is that. It could also be that they got big enough to be noticed and someone else within the hacking community decided to target them because of the money that they knew this group had after the widespread publication of this big, perhaps unintentionally big, ransomware attack on this pipeline. It could also be connected in some way to the flurry of announcements by various cybercrime forums, especially Russian forums, including those in which Darkseid primarily operated and found their affiliates, that ransomware discussions would no longer be allowed because such attacks had become too hot, too publicized and too associated with quick money plans that caused too much collateral damage, and that came burdened with too many geopolitical issues that, in essence, made the lives of all hackers more difficult, because more resources and attention are then aimed at hackers of all stripes by governments around the world because of the activities and carelessness 
and attention drawn to all of them because of the work of just a few. It's possible that a combination of their increased notoriety, including within the U.S. government, President Biden said that the U.S. would disrupt the hackers behind the pipeline cyber attack after all, and that dismissal from Russian hacker forums combined into a good excuse to just retire for those who were able to make millions off of this and similar attacks over the past half year or so. It could also be, though, and this seems to be the prevailing theory in some aspects of the cybersecurity world at the moment, that Darkseid just pulled what's often called an exit scam. An exit scam in this context typically means a group like Darkseid, which has affiliates and thus other entities that it needs to pay. So they collect all of the money from these ransoms and then they pay out their affiliates from that money that they collect after all is said and done. They wait until they have a bunch of money in the bank, or in this case in their crypto wallets, and then they manufacture an excuse that makes it look like all of that money was stolen. So, oh no, they can't pay out their affiliates. When in reality, they actually just pocketed all of that money. In this case, they had the perfect cover for such a scam. They had just been threatened by name by the U.S. government, which seems intent on punishing those involved, but also, if possible, stealing back their ill-gotten gains and making sure that they cannot attack anyone else using the same approach, at least anytime soon. So it's possible that Darkseid, realizing that their name had gotten too big and too well-known, and that the work they were doing was becoming frowned upon by their fellow hackers, and recognizing that they were being targeted by a powerful government, decided to make it look like they were hit, all of their stuff taken, while in reality, they were pocketing all of that money, including the money that they still owed to their affiliates, which hadn't yet been paid out, which added up to an estimated $17.5 million, based on analysis of Bitcoin transactions to the wallets that they used to receive these ransoms. And they basically just shut down shop. Over time, laundering that crypto money so they can pay themselves out without anyone knowing what happened for certain, and then changing all of their handles and backgrounds so that they can figure out what comes next. Now that ransomware isn't really very popular with anyone, and mostly seems like a great way to put a target on your back. That said, ransomware does still seem to be very profitable, and it's unlikely that this one well-publicized shutdown Whatever the truth behind that shutdown will change that fact. It's also likely that we will see more regulations put into place by government entities as part of a larger effort to reduce the number of attacks launched each year, especially attacks against vital institutions like the Irish Health Service operator, which, as of the damn recording this, is struggling to get back up and running after a recent ransomware attack that they refused to pay. Already there are regulations in the United States against paying ransomware ransoms to groups operating out of sanctioned countries, like Iran or North Korea, or to groups that are themselves sanctioned, as is the case with some hacking groups operating out of Russia. These regulations, and more focus on the problem, might help, but a lot of the growth in this facet of the cybercrime world seems to be the consequence 
of there being more pre-built push-button software tools that provide a financial incentive for hackers to spend more of their time breaching defenses, doing actual hacking, allowing them to worry less about what happens once they are inside a vulnerable system. That side of things can be handled by these pre-made ransomware software and service suites that cost them a piece of the ransom to use, but which otherwise typically don't cost a thing. Innovations, like those used by DarkSide, to threaten reputation and economic consequences above and beyond simply locking down their victims' data, may also help keep this industry stoked, even in the face of new threats from regulators and law enforcement entities. It's conceivable that this side of this type of crime might even eventually become the main purpose of such hacks at some point. Attacks paid for not by ransoms, but by information about who has been hacked, provided to stock traders or industry competitors. This is kind of a dark and cynical possibility, but it does seem to be a possibility nonetheless. The book that I'd like to recommend today is called The Nature of Nature, Why We Need the Wild by Enric Sala. The main thesis of this book, in addition to just being a wonderful rumination about nature and why it's valuable and interesting and inspiring and so on, is that it makes sense to try to put a price on nature in a lot of cases. Because if we can do so, then we can get things like economics and the market and modern society to value nature in a way that makes it less likely that it will be abused or destroyed. And this is a concept that may at first sound counterintuitive, because how do you put a value on something like an ecosystem, first of all, but also it seems a little bit dark to simply slap a price tag on everything. But the idea is that doing so, putting prices on these things that seem priceless, makes them legible to systems that otherwise can very conveniently ignore them because they do not have that type of data attached to them. So even if those prices don't make perfect sense because they are in many ways priceless and irreplaceable, going through that type of process can actually create a situation where economics and global markets and all sorts of industries are finally able to see nature in a way that they cannot currently see it and to take destruction of nature into account when they are making decisions about what to produce, how to produce it, and so on. Now, if any of that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of The Nature of Nature by Enric Sala. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find the show notes and transcript for this episode and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. You can find my other podcast, Brain Lenses, wherever you get your podcasts or at brainlenses.com. You can subscribe to my daily news curating newsletter at onesentencenews.com. And feel free to reach out and say howdy on social media. I'm Colin Wright on Facebook and at Colin is my name on most of the other ones. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week. Mm-hmm.